Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I've been Facebook friends with Deanna Price for a while now, and I follow her page Deanna Price Horsemanship and Shade Tree Stables. I've always found her information about the horse's balance and riding and movement to be interesting, especially as that's something I'm still growing in. When I found out she was interested in hoof care too, I reached out to see if she would chat with me about how body tension and balance affects the horse's feet and vice versa. Okay, so can you tell us how you got started in training? So I was always a horse crazy kid. And then once my parents finally realized this wasn't going away, um, and I started riding lessons and then eventually got my own horse. I was just one of those barn rats that was always hanging around and took to it like a fish to water. And my trainer would often say, you know, switch with so-and-so because their horse was showing some undesired behavior that looking back now was probably, you know, an uncomfortable saddle or some kind of discomfort. But anyway, I just kind of got put on whatever horse needed someone maybe a little bit less timid, more assertive. So that's what I did. And I just kind of ended up being put on horses and and riding horses for other people, even at a very young age and my trainer's horses. And then in college, a local barn called me and said, Hey, are you still showing and doing stuff? We would really love to have you come teach. And so that's when I started actually teaching people on their horses. And so that was 20 years ago this year. Wow. That's awesome. And so then how did it evolve to you taking an interest in, in hooves? Well, I always say ignorance is bliss, you know, and I, I love, I loved, like, I shouldn't say I loved it, but it was much easier when I thought everything was a training issue. And so after high school, the summer after high school, I still had my original horse. Actually, I just had until last year, like he, I finally had to put him down at 35, but I had bought a second horse right after high school and he was kind of a rescue case, a little bit of rehab case. He was an off the track thoroughbred that came off the track and was in somebody's backyard and just real skinny and the feet hadn't been attended to or anything like that. So I picked this horse up really cheap, you know, because I was young and ambitious and um, I fattened him up and, you know, got him on a regular hoof care program and started working with him. And I took him to that barn then that I was working at. And sometimes I would use him as my lead horse if I was taking people out on the trails all day or just taking him out there, you know, for a change of scenery so that he was becoming a well-rounded citizen. And the barn owner said, hey, what is with those feet? And I was like, I I don't know. He's got four of them. And so he said, we're fixing that right now. And he just kind of took over his hoof care and got him a lot better. But he really forced me to read things, reading this book, take this book and read it. And, And this was college. You know, I had exams and finals and stuff that I was like, I don't have time for this recreational reading. I have all these tests. But he was like, take this and read it. And so he really drilled into me the importance of hoof care. And then after that, like he he took care of my horse for a while when I worked there, but then I ended up um, getting a really wonderful farrier that I'm still using 20 years later that I have learned a lot from him. And and just realizing that no matter what you do on the rest of the horse, it doesn't matter if the foundation is crumbling. Yeah, absolutely. And if, so I feel like I'm kind of the opposite of that where I get so focused on the feet and I know so little, I don't want to say so little, but there's a lot that I need to learn about the upper body and training and movement. 
And I know that there are a million aspects of that that we could focus on. Um, So I thought we could just jump right in. I have a horse that was diagnosed with navicular and I spent years rehabbing him and getting him to soundness. There were times where I really wondered if it was actually his heel pain that was causing him to move differently or if there were other upper body compensations or something else that was causing his movement to change. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about reasons a horse might land toe first or in a shorter stride other than heel pain. I don't think that there's any one factor. I always say that training is just one small piece of a very complicated puzzle. And so there's so many factors, you know, maybe nature didn't set the horse up to win confirmationally. Maybe the horse didn't have a great hoof care program early on, something nutritionally, and then you compound it with training, it becomes the perfect storm. So if a horse is, it has a nice foot and most of the time it's, it's landing heel first, but maybe when you're working it, it's starting to land a little bit toe first. I find that that's very much because horses are heavy on the forehand. Nature has made them to be heavy on the forehand for efficiency of movement, but we forget that horses were not designed to carry us. So when we put the weight of a rider on, it then compounds the way the horse is moving heavy on the forehand. And horses are not made to go around in arenas and circles and rectangles repetitively. So a lot of times if they're heavy on the forehand, which they all are, they'll feel very heavy in your hands and and they're pulling on your arms or they're pushing into your hand if you're doing groundwork. But some horses are also just very light and soft in the pole. And those horses may never feel heavy in your hand, yet they're still very heavy on their forehand. So when they're moving, a lot of times you'll see in the sand, you'll see them kind of kick sand. Like when their toe hits a little bit of sand, shoots forward with each step, especially if the footing is dry. And that's just because they're trudging along. They're using their back end to to push, which is what they do by nature is push with their hind end. But if we want to use them as riding horses, I think it's our responsibility to rebalance them in a way that creates a healthy posture so that they have a healthy, comfortable life and career well into old age. So trying to get them to shift back and carry more with their hind legs is really what we want to do in training. And what happens too is that horses are like us. They're right-bended or left-bended. We're right-handed. We're left-handed. And also our legs, we're left-legged or right-legged. So if you notice when you're standing, you know, washing dishes, brushing your teeth, standing in line somewhere, you'll probably notice you stand heavier on one leg than the other. And the horses like that with their front limbs and their hind limbs. So we help to get them balanced a little bit more, right to left. We have to teach them lateral bending so they become supple in their body and they start to distribute that weight a little bit more evenly among their hooves. And then once we have that balance a bit more right to left, we can start to shift them back. And so that's a big discussion. I don't know that you want that big of an answer because that's not something you do in a day. That's something that you're always striving for over a lifetime. But just trying to shift the weight back a bit to lighten the front end of the horse and engage a bit their thoracic sling. So that when they're moving forward, especially when they're carrying a rider, that they're placing their foot on the sand instead of just trudging and and kicking their foot into the sand. Yeah, and that's something that I watch really closely for because even if it's not foot pain that's causing them to land that way, it can lead to, you know, soft tissue injury if they're biomechanically moving inappropriately, even if it's just like a laziness or a 
you know, strength Mm -hmm. issue. Um, And I know that you mentioned that it's kind of a big subject. Obviously, it's something that we do over the (laughs) lifetime of a horse. But do you have maybe a, a beginner groundwork exercise that a listener could do to work on their horse's hind end or getting them strengthened through their hind end? Sure. So what I like to do first is get that lateral bending, that suppleness both ways, because you'll find that, and most people notice it when they're riding, because I think more people ride than do groundwork. But either way, you'll notice that in one direction, the horse feels very easy to turn and soft and balanced. And the other way, they don't feel so balanced. They're falling in on the circle. They're heavy on your hand. They're rushing. So I like to start from the ground because I feel like it's a lot easier for the horse to accomplish it when they're not also trying to carry the weight of a rider. And I really like to work with a cabazon. So you have the, the ring on the, on the bridge of the nose, because when you work from there, it just encourages a little bit more length in the neck and the spine. And you can kind of invite the nose a little bit more downward, where if you have just a halter or something underneath their chin and you pull that way, oftentimes that brings the nose outward and kind of crunches the pull back into the neck a little bit and shortens the neck. So cabazon is really nice, but you, you can do it in a bridle as well, or even just by holding the bridge of the nose, like the halter on the bridge of the nose, and to kind of guide the horse and get them standing um, squarely. And notice if they're standing heavier on one front leg than the other. Um, a lot of horses, it's very hard to get them squared up as far as the front legs parallel to each other. And if you get that, then notice from the side, are they leaning forward? Are their legs upright straight or are they hanging a bit over their sternum because that's really common because again horses by nature are heavy on the forehand so standing like that can be a hoof pathology and a a discomfort thing but it can just be because that's their natural posture so I will use the cavison and I will kind of try to shift the horse back a bit without them actually stepping back and then I'll take a dressage with like I have a like a scratchy stick which is just a, a whip that I use to extend my reach And um, it's got like a little scratcher on the end of it, you know, for positive reinforcement. But I will point that at their chest and and maybe touch at the chest a little bit at the base of the neck to see if they can shift and kind of find some of those thoracic sling muscles and see if they can even stand squarely, just standing there, not even in motion. And then from there, I just like to do gradual circles, you know, to the right and to the left where they're curling around me and they're not falling in on the circle. So if you're walking on a circle, and your horse is, is curling around you, you should feel like you can walk without the horse almost stepping on your toes, that they're moving almost forward and outward away from you. And there's some really good sources for that, um, some online sources too that teach that. But um, it's more the classical type of groundwork as opposed to, I think a lot of the groundwork that's popular around here as far as disengaging the hind end and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I did um, straightness training with Marika DeYoung. Yes. Yeah. So I did, um, she had a clinic in like 2016 or something in Connecticut and I went and it was really Mm -hmm. good. I just audited, so I didn't bring a horse, but I've worked a little Mm -hmm. bit with Meg Brock, who's in Connecticut too. And it is a lot like, you know, we, I have a cabison and, and I do a lot of, or I used to, I did a lot of that. And yeah, I mean, even, even more so like the body, I feel like his brain was so engaged when we did that, because yeah. when he was lame, there was only so much I could do with him physically, but getting his brain thinking helped a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's just the simplicity of it. And it's, 
it's simple, but yet it's really easy to do it. I don't want to say wrong, but where the horse maybe doesn't get the benefit of the exercise because the horse will always take the path of least resistance. So if they don't have to step in a certain way, they will fall back into their patterns. Just like we have postural habits, we have movement habits, the horse will do the same thing. So if you're not paying attention, sometimes the horse will in a way compensate or at least doing it in the most efficient way for them, which maybe isn't giving you the result that you want. Yeah, right. I mean, that makes complete sense. So then kind of coming, you know, along those same lines, do you ever see horses that are diagnosed with hoof issues, but you believe actually started from them moving incorrectly or started with something higher up in the body that then caused them to compensate down their limb instead of us thinking about it in the opposite way? Yeah, I think, um, again, that it's always multiple factors contributing to these things. And I think that as a whole, we tend to get caught up on the limbs. You know, we're, we're having hockey issues, we're having ligament issues, whatever. But I think a lot of it either starts at the hoof and works its way up or it starts at the spine and works its way down. So that kind of goes back to having the dominant hind limb. So, or actually a dominant front limb is where we see it oftentimes. So if you have a horse that hasn't been kind of schooled and learned how to properly carry himself to carry the weight of a rider and they're doing repetitive things over and over but they're already heavy on the forehand and then they're dominantly falling on one limb more than the other that's going to compound that so that can very well give you the high lows the navicular the ring bone the side bone and, and again maybe there's still the factors of confirmation or it's not an ideal hoof but Certainly, I think movement can contribute to that because it's repetitive movement and the horse is weighting themselves so heavily. I had a horse actually that I worked with for a long time and he was—he had a lot, a lot of issues. He was a very young horse and he had a lot of issues, but one thing he had going for him is his feet were well-maintained. So his feet were fine, but he had all these limb issues. And so we were working through this and, you know, with the veterinarian and um, some chiropractic and through exercises to help get him a little bit more balanced right to left. And shortly into working with this horse, I said, no, there's something with the base of his neck when he gets adjusted, look into, into that. And then he'd get adjusted and it didn't really change anything. And we'd still keep doing our exercises, getting him supple, getting him shifted back a little bit. And over time, he really did improve. Like even the vet said, like, this horse has never looked better. I mean, he's moving fantastic. But there were things, you know, that I was like, this is still just not right. And um, I really, truly believe there was something in his neck that was not right. So for ethical reasons and for safety reasons, I just said, if you're not going to look into this, then I, I'm not going to work with this horse anymore. And it's one of those things, as a professional, you get it, that you want you want it so bad for the horse and the owner, and you're very invested. And it it's wearing on us professionals to have to then walk away from that. But I did, and then I actually was back at that bar, and this horse was starting to get high-low, okay, because of the way he was moving, I think, because he was fine, and he has a great barrier. It's actually the same barrier that I use, and he was developing high-low. And so I walked away from that situation, but was back at that barn like six months later for another client. So I went to go visit this horse and see how he was doing and feed him his favorite banana cookies, you know. And um, I hadn't seen him for six months, and I know that I, I'm confident that the – owner was no longer doing these exercises, you know, to really help correct his 
habitual movement pattern. And in six months, the only thing that had changed was his, his movement and his high-low was so much worse. You know, and of course, when you don't see it for six months, but I couldn't believe in six months how much worse that got. And I do believe that that was because of whatever's going on in his mind. Yeah. And I, I've seen that go both ways too. And not even necessarily, you know, people that are working in one specific form of training, but, but owners that are really focused on getting their horse balanced and riding well and working properly and and building up their muscling and top line, I'll often see their feet balance out. Like if they have a high, low in front, I'll see them start to balance out. Or on the other hand, I have seen horses that their feet are pretty balanced. And then once they're back in ridden work, they get really wonky. And I've always, you know, talked to the owner about, well, you know, are you asking it? Like, what are you asking them to do under saddle? I've even asked them about their saddle fit. And it's stuff that I don't know enough about to necessarily give direction. But I know that it's something that happened when the owner was riding that is now (laughs) causing their feet to look really imbalanced. (laughs) Yeah, there's just so many factors. Like you said, it could be the saddle and it could be just the horse's natural imbalance. We're all asymmetrical. I mean, if you watch your dog walk in front of you, they don't move symmetrically. So those can all contribute. But then when you put a rider on, it's also very asymmetrical. That can start causing a lot of problems as well, especially if it's, say, a rider who's left leg dominant, who's standing heavier in that left stirrup, and then a horse that's also left front limb dominant. That can really contribute to that because the horse is having to compensate for his own weight while going around in circles while also compensating for that extra weight of the rider. And so, and this was another question that we had kind of talked about and it kind of already answers part of that, but how does riding horses without first preparing them and educating them to carry themselves properly lead to pathology and issues? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's a big question. And, and sometimes I know I have a friend currently who's kind of going through this. I think we've all gone through this. We're like, wow, should we even be riding horses? So the horse by nature is not made to carry weight. They have this horizontal spine and then we want to sit down in the middle of it. And so when you actually look at the anatomy and the bones, and I I teach classes on this because I think it's so great for people to have these visuals of what's going on underneath them and how these different joints and areas of the horse's body should function. And I show them bones that are healthier and then bones that have pathology. But if we look at the horse's spine and the thoracic vertebrae, like the first 15, they're very long. There's these dorsal spinous processes that come off of it that go upward in the horse's spine. That's what you can feel on their midline. The first 15 kind of slant a bit backwards. And then then there's one that goes kind of straight up. And then the last couple of thoracics go forward again and pointing towards the horse's head along with the lumbar vertebrae, the spinous processes there. So then when you, if you take your hands and you put some of your fingers on your left hand pointing to the right and the fingers on your right hand pointing to the left, and then you imagine putting a downward force sitting down on top of that, you can see how it's almost like a hammock. And that's not a healthy way for a horse to carry a person. So what we want to do is teach that horse to lift their back and engage the thoracic sling muscle so that they create space between those dorsal processes and they can carry the weight of a rider in a little bit healthier way. Because anytime you get, if you, if you don't start with compensation in the feet and you get it in the spine, it's going to end up in the feet most likely. So if, if those spinous processes are rubbing 
and the horse is uncomfortable, either because of poor saddle fit or poor riding or posture, that's going to lead to pathology at the top. It's going to work its way down and it's going to show up in some other form because the horse is working in a compensatory way. Like their back is no longer moving the way it should. So it's going to put stress on other structures that were not meant to carry that load. This is all really great. And and even for me, like thinking about the horse that I lease and ride the most. So if I were to go to that horse and try to figure out, you know, am I actually working properly? What are some things that we can look for or feel, I guess, when we're riding, if we don't have someone that is as knowledgeable, like coaching us on ensuring our horse is moving properly? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really important. And of course, it's, there's different degrees, you know, there's different degrees of, of collection and movement. The biggest thing we want to avoid is making sure that the horse is not going around with its head in the air. Because then it's just like if you, if you kind of put your head back, you can feel how that tenses the rest of your back. And I don't know if you can even hear I'm doing it right now, but it changes my voice. So if the horse is going around with its head in the air, the back is going to be hollow. The base of the neck is going to be dropped and bulging a bit forward. And the withers are going to drop between the shoulder blades because there's no bony connection there from the, from the front limb to the, to the trunk of the horse's body. The horse doesn't have a clavicle. So there's these thoracic pin muscles that we can incorporate to help lift the base of the horse's neck, and that will help lift the rest of the spine. So when you're riding, if you can get that lateral bending like we talked about, so the horse is going around the turns instead of like leaning in like a motorcycle, they're more following the arc of the circle, and they're they're laterally bending through the length of their body. If they're doing that and they're doing it properly, and you're not holding them back tightly with your hand, the head will naturally go down because we want a long spine. So even in collection, we want a long spine. We want that neck to be arching forward in a bascule. If you think of kind of like a, like a dolphin, where a dolphin moves, that there's this roundness over the top line. And so you can have that in different degrees. If the horse is searching a bit down, that is much healthier. That's a more neutral posture. And when I say searching down with the nose, we don't really want the nose down and poked out and we don't want it way down on the ground because the head and neck are heavy so if if it's too low it's actually just pulling more weight onto the forehand but a good a good visual is if the horse has nose about in line with the bottom of the chest that's usually a, a pretty good height for most horses to be in a more neutral posture and then when you start talking about collection you want to make sure it's not compression so the spine should still be very long but because we get the haunches to sit a bit more, then the head and neck will come up. But something to look for is the base of the neck. Is it, is it lifted or is it convex and bulging? And are the withers lifted? It should be like, ah, you know, like when you're riding in the woods and all of a sudden you see a deer and your horse like feels like they get taller <laughs> or they hear a treat bag or something and all of a sudden you feel them get taller or you see them get taller. That's engaging the thoracic flank. And so that's what you want when you have the horse actually collected because then it's helping to support the base of the neck, which is the most flexible part of the spine, but it's actually a very much destabilized part of the spine. So if we can recruit some of those muscles to kind of lift and support, it's going to make a lot healthier movement in the horse and a lot more comfort long-term. And I don't want to scare people thinking they have to ride a horse in collection all the time, but 
we just want to make sure that we're not compressing, that we're not, even if the horse has its head low, we want an open throat latch area. So we don't want to see like compression of where the jaw is next to the neck. There shouldn't be any like wrinkles there where you can see the bulging of the salivary gland. We want to have an open throat latch with the nose searching a bit down. Yeah. Actually, it's, okay. it's as you were talking, I was thinking about how, so often we talk about how things that we do can create or lead to pathology. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, you know, what if we're dealing with a horse that already has pathology or we're dealing with a horse that has lameness issues? Have you corrected movement or strengthened, you know, their hind end, their top line, other areas of their body and resolved issues or at least gained soundness? Yeah, actually, um, the one I was talking about earlier, he really did improve. I mean, even the vet was just like, this horse looks better than he's ever looked. I'm just super particular. I knew there was more we could do. Um, but I have one that I've been working with now for a couple of years and he's actually, um, his owner brought him to board here at my barn and he is currently 27. I think he was 24 when I started working with him. And it has been amazing because we've been doing all this stuff, like getting him supple both ways. He was very much a right bended horse. And now his owner's like, oh my gosh, I actually think he's better to the left. And he has even surprised me because I didn't know how much we could do. We always work within his comfort level. And some days his comfort level, we can do more things than others. But his body worker and the veterinarian that we use for chiropractic work have both said, oh my gosh, this horse has a top line. Like at 27, this horse is building a top line. He's really gotten a lot more sound in his hind end because he was really having where he was like falling out in his hind end. But he's working a bit better under a tight end. He can do haunches in and hand, and he's really looking good. He's really looking good. He, actually, but I mean, his owner is all in. So, you know, she's all in with diet, turnout, looking him regularly, which is mostly in hand. She does still do a little bit of riding with him, and she did end up having to change hoof care professionals. But she's got him on a really great schedule, and they're really making some changes because he really had long toes and underrun heels, but. Even at 27, I'm amazed at the progress. He's he's surprised me even on how well he's doing. That's so great. And that's really hopeful for a lot of people who think like, oh, my older horse is just going to be wasting away until the end, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And he, um, he had shoes and, and now he's barefoot and he, he did get a diagnosis of navicular, but you know, she's maintaining them and he's really looking good. I'm really impressed with how well he's doing. And it does, you know, his owner's just so happy that she can keep them comfortable into well into old age. Yeah, that's fantastic. So if an owner is listening and they are hoping to find some resources to, you know, follow or, you know, if they want to contact you or find a, a trainer that might be able to help them with this, where would you direct them? Um, they can definitely go to my Facebook page, which is Deanna Price Horsemanship at Shade Tree Stables. Price is spelled kind of weird. It's P-R-E-I-S. But if you just type in Shade Tree Stables, it should come up. I work with people in person and then also video analysis. And I also teach my classes through Zoom if people are interested in doing that if they're not local. There's a lot of great online resources. So straightness training is fantastic. And they have actually a lot on their website. You could stay pretty busy for a few days reading just the free information they have on their website. But their mastery program is fantastic. 
Jillian Kreinbring teaches a fantastic functional anatomy course. And I believe that she has that coming out online as well soon. I think one of the things that COVID has done is really made information even more accessible to people because so many things are now available online because we all had to regroup and do things differently. I mean, I didn't do any online kind of teaching or video review myself before COVID, but yeah, it's definitely opened up a world of information that was only available if you were willing to travel before. I know. And, and now, um, at least where I am, things are starting to open up and I feel like there's been less online offerings, <laughs> which I kind of, I kind of liked it. Like you could do it at your own pace or at your own time. And, but mm-hmm. it's good that there's still things out there. Um, yeah. And I think, so honestly, those were the main questions that I can think of, but was there anything that you want to address that maybe I skipped over or that you feel is important to include? Um, I do think it's, it's very important for an owner to educate themselves. You know, like we did, we spoke about how there's so many opportunities to do that. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that you don't have to know everything yourself. You know, I don't have to be a mechanic. I just have to know enough not to get my blinker fluid changed. So as a trainer, I don't have to know everything about hook care, but I have to know enough to know who's the right person for my team. So you have to have a team of people, you know, it's not just one aspect. It's saddle fitters, it's dentists, it's chiropractors, body workers, training, hoof care, diet, environment. There's so many factors that you just have to know enough and educate yourself enough to be able to choose wisely. And really, you're never done learning. Never. Just the more you learn, the more you realize there's so much you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I say that all the time (laughs) for myself. Yeah. Well, great. I think this was awesome. Absolutely. I mean, that's what it's all about is just trying to educate the owner so the horse has a better life because it's always us, you know, it's never the horse. And there's so many ways that things can go awry that the more we're educated and the more we share this information with people, the less heartache they're going to have, the less expense they're going to have, the happier and healthier the horses are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's even it's even super important for other equine professionals to hear of all the different factors because I'm guilty of getting so trapped in my own little world that sometimes I forget that, wow, there's things like saddle fit and training and all this other stuff that's going to affect their feet too. So. Oh, for sure. I I think always an extra set of eyes because too, when you look at the same problem for so long or over and over again, even in different courses, sometimes you don't see things that someone else comes into the picture and sees and you're like, that's the piece I was missing and that we can all work for work off of each other and we can all help each other for the betterment of the horse because it, it takes a tribe. It takes a whole tribe of people that care and know their piece of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being willing to uh, do this and for being flexible with the timing and the date and everything. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Awesome. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.